Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Maybe you're not born with a silver spoon in your mouth, but like every American, you carry a deed to 635 million acres of public land. That's right, even if you don't own a house or the latest computer on the market, you own Yosemite, Yellowstone, the Grand Canyon, Golden Gate National Recreation Area, and many other national treasures. John Garamendi. Welcome back to Dead and Gone in Wyoming, a monthly podcast telling the stories of this remarkable state's most enduring murders and disappearances. I'm Scott Fuller, and coming up on this month's episode, an often requested episode, it seems like every listener who's ever been to Yellowstone National Park has on their way home wondered to me via email how many people do go missing or worse in America's first national park. The Wyoming side of Yellowstone is not, as it turns out, the train station it might be depicted as in the television show with the same name but with so many people adventuring into an untouched wilderness larger than the states of delaware and rhode island combined it is bound to happen the odd tragedy or mystery my nine-year-old son is named Lincoln. He is named in part after the president. That's about as much as I've told him about that so far. He'll ask and I'll say, yes, you were named after the president. But someday I'll explain specifically why to him. One of the reasons is it was one of the few names that his mother and I agreed on. There's always that. But it's not for the reasons you might think otherwise. Not because Lincoln was considered a great president, now posthumously one of the most popular ever. It's not because he won the Civil War not even because of emancipation, not because he was a self-made man, both undereducated and at the same time brilliant as a lawyer, who epitomized what we today consider to be the American dream, taking advantage of one of the few places on earth where a person can move vertically up and down throughout society. It's not because of Lincoln's speeches, four score, house divided, and all that. 
I do appreciate those things, of course, about the 16th president and many other things as well from these several books I have about the president on my bookshelf. But none of those things that I may someday tell my son about are the reason I chose Lincoln as a name. Instead, the reason is arguably the most tyrannical thing the leader of a free nation ever did. In the midst of a civil war, a state lawmaker from Maryland named John Merriman was arrested on charges of hindering the progress of the Union Army as it tried to go from Baltimore to Washington, D.C. At which point, then-President Abraham Lincoln unilaterally suspended Merriman's rights to habeas corpus. So rather than being released to Maryland or turned over to another jurisdiction or even offered a bond of any kind, Merriman was kept in a military prison without a trial, without a hearing, without really any representation, which is a violation of a fundamental construct of American law since the founding of our country. It remains one today. Habeas corpus requires the state to produce evidence against someone accused of a crime. The idea is to keep the state from locking people away indefinitely without cause or without a hearing. Yeah, pretty important little detail of American law. Lincoln just threw it out. A federal judge almost certainly correctly after that ruled that Lincoln had violated John Merriman's constitutional and civil rights. Supreme Court later agreed, but that would take years. And nobody was more aware of John Merriman's rights under the U.S. Constitution and the president's role in American rule of law more so than Abraham Lincoln was. He was also completely aware that this action, as a precedence, could and then was applied to anyone else that he deemed it necessary to hold without trial for the entire duration of the war. Lincoln did make some compelling legal arguments of his own about the power of the executive branch. He tried to make the case that it was allowed, or at the very least it was ambiguous that it was not necessarily strictly not allowed for a president to do what he had done. But I will always believe that President Lincoln knew exactly that the decision he made was extra-constitutional, to put it uh, politely, and that it was well outside his powers in his role in the government. But he did it anyway. And the reason he did had nothing to do with the law. It had nothing to do with the Constitution, both things Lincoln was expert in. Very simply, he thought that's what he needed to do to win the war. In violating the civil rights of those that he felt were a hindrance to that effort, that greater moral imperative as he saw it, Lincoln thought, I believe, that if doing something like that, even something so extreme, would end the war just one day sooner and begin uniting the nation just one day sooner, he would have done it once or twice or a hundred times. There is no word to describe this action other than tyrannical. That word was used a lot as a result of this in President Lincoln's time. It was not a popular decision among a population already literally split down the middle on which side they wanted to win the war and the virtues that both sides fought for and what should remain from both sides after the war came to an end. To do what needs to be done for what Lincoln saw, and I say correctly so, is a higher moral purpose. To do what you think is right, even in the face of colossal opposition, even when a good majority of that opposition comes from yourself. And there is no doubt that Lincoln himself was highly conflicted about that decision. He also had no way of knowing what negative ramifications might immediately or even centuries from then arise from that one precedence, he said. But I can think of no better example to give, no better story to tell of someone doing what is right when it's not the easy thing to do, which is a value 
a trait, a virtue that many parents, myself included, hope becomes instilled in their child. This tyrannical act is the reason that Abraham Lincoln is my favorite president. My son Lincoln, though, his favorite president, Teddy Roosevelt, specifically because of the creation of Yellowstone National Park. See, the wolf is my son's favorite animal. The story of Teddy Roosevelt, who's this man that goes out on wilderness adventures and has the strange mustache, looks kind of like a mountain man, but's also a president, and he goes out and he protects and preserves this area of land for the wolves and the other wildlife in the area. That's a great story. I mean, I guess that's all he needs to know about that right now. But that is another thing I'll have to one day, though, correct him on. It's a common misconception that Teddy Roosevelt created Yellowstone. I mean, the giant arch in the park with his name on it doesn't really help the confusion, I guess. Teddy Roosevelt might well be the reason that Yellowstone is still here today, but the truth is Yellowstone had been established as the first national park in the world 30 years before Teddy ever bullied his way onto it and saw it for the first time. Yellowstone was created by Abraham Lincoln's Union General-in-Chief, I would say, and eventual president Ulysses S. Grant. Grant has never gotten a whole lot of credit for Yellowstone. Then again, Roosevelt and Grant have decidedly different images in American history. Let's just say there was never any danger of anyone naming a stuffed animal after Ulysses S. Grant. Nor, I guess, would he have wanted them to. Without the formation of Yellowstone National Park, it is almost a certainty that those lands covering parts of three states today would be entirely developed and commercialized. And who knows what else. Instead, because of the actions of President Grant and the later actions of President Roosevelt to preserve it, those lands appear more or less exactly the same as they did when the Crow and the Shoshone and the other native tribes called them home for generations, the same as they appeared in 1903 when Teddy Roosevelt saw it for the first time 120 years ago. Dare I say, might I hope, they appear the same as they will a hundred or maybe a thousand years from now. Yes, in the small towns around Yellowstone on all sides, local economies benefit, but there's nothing frankly appealing to me about the idea of flocks of Subarus and minivans driving through attractive wilderness to take photos and bother the wildlife that are non-native to Southern California and Central Ohio or the thousands of other places that tourists come to Wyoming from every summer. But I do love the idea of the time machine the untouched wilderness that Yellowstone allows anyone to experience. It's a look back at our past on this planet. It's some kind of still, even today, a reconnection of a genetic predisposition that we have as a species that once lived with the Earth as opposed to just on it. Yellowstone is a tourist attraction, and I suppose it's supposed to be, but there are still plenty of places to get lost in the indifference of the wilderness in those parts of Wyoming, and people do. Middle of last summer, it was reported that a human foot was found floating inside of one of the hot pools at Yellowstone National Park. That's a attention-grabbing headline, to say the least. Many of you might remember seeing that over the last year or so. It was eventually determined using DNA that the foot, which was seen floating still inside a size 8.5 black shoe, belonged to a 70-year-old man, Il Hoon Roe of Los Angeles. On some morning in July 2022, Roe somehow ended up in one of the park's hot springs. The search of the abandoned car he drove there turned up a few hundred dollars in cash. There was a lot of talk about some handwritten poems that required translation that were also found in the car, but which did not include any suicidal ideations. 
The floating foot was not spotted in the Abyss Hot Springs pool until about two weeks later. As such a popular destination, the National Park Service takes great care to ensure the safety of visitors to the geyser fields at Yellowstone. There are warnings, there are many signs, they maintain very sturdy boardwalks for people to walk on that you're absolutely supposed to stay on. But every year, without fail, park rangers come to the rescue of one or two visitors who have strayed off the pathway. And it's not just adults at risk. Small children are often the ones who fall from the boardwalks or accidentally step through the thin layer of Earth's crust into boiling water below. In his 1995 book, Death in Yellowstone, park archivist Lee H. Whittlesley delved into a darker and more tragic side of the park that isn't talked about much. Whittlesley combed through National Park Service records to uncover 19 human fatalities caused by just the thermal features of Yellowstone, which are the most popular attraction in the park. Among the victims were young children who wandered away from their parents, daring and cerebrally underdeveloped teenagers who fell through the thin surface, unsuspecting fishermen who stumbled into scalding hot springs near Yellowstone Lake, and even park employees who risked their own safety for a forbidden dip in the hot pot thermal ponds. A staggering number of people visit the nation's oldest national park every year, and the number has been higher than 3 million visitors annually every single year since 2008. Nearly a million of those visitors, a third of Yellowstone's visitors every year, will be accounted for in the month of July alone each summer. Tourists making reckless decisions around the wildlife in Yellowstone has become an annual meme on social media. Inevitably, some soccer mom from the Midwest will treat her visit to the National Park as though it were a drive through petting zoo until a very perturbed 2,000-pound buffalo just inevitably doesn't want to put up with it any longer. Obviously, most of the harm that comes to anyone in Yellowstone represents a tiny, tiny mathematical fraction of the millions of visitors that come through every year. And they are, generally speaking, the fault of the injured themselves. And it's more fun to laugh at a please-don't-pet-the-fluffy-cows meme on Facebook than it is to attempt to generate some sympathy for a would-be Darwin Award nominee who usually did something stupid in order to end up injured in the first place. When I become interested in stories from Yellowstone is what happens when you wander away from the tourists and the ranger stations and the road and the parking areas. The stories of those who trek away from the crowd and outside of any local law enforcement jurisdiction to explore a wilderness that has been kept wild on purpose for generations. These are the places where mystery more easily hides. One of those really fascinating missing cases from Yellowstone National Park is also one I won't be able to tell you much about because there's just not a lot known about whatever happened to Stuart Isaac. Stuart Isaac was 48 years old when his black Lexus with Vanity Maryland license plates was found right at Craig Pass on a relatively busy park highway linking Old Faithful to West Thumb. The vehicle appears to have been found during a routine ranger patrol of the Isa Lake parking area. Isa Lake really isn't much of a lake. It's more of a weedy marsh off the side of the highway. And the parking area isn't a whole lot either. It's a, more of a pull-off on the side of the road. It likely exists not because of the lake, but because that pull-off is right on a portion of the Continental Divide, the point at which water flows to one side or the other, either into the Pacific Ocean eventually or east of the waterways that lead to the Atlantic and the Gulf of Mexico. There is a park sign on the highway indicating the divide, elevation about 8,200 feet, and this provides a low-effort photo op for Yellowstone tourists. 
So an unoccupied sedan with Maryland license plates would not necessarily be out of place at all here, but there's also no hiking trails or any other attractions to explore. It's just a pull-off on the side of the highway with the sign that says Continental Divide. And so a vehicle that hadn't moved in two or three passes of a park ranger on a Sunday evening would stand out. And that's how it was learned that Stuart Isaac was missing. Stuart was a Pacific Islander at about 5 foot 9, 220 pounds, black hair, close cropped when he didn't have it shaved bald entirely at all. He had the appearance of a linebacker, almost. The Lexus was found 13 years ago this month in September, September 26th, 2010. Stuart hadn't been seen by his family where he lived in Burtonsville, Maryland, outside of Rockville, in several weeks, and to the best anyone knew, he'd embarked on a cross-country road trip. Authorities say he left a note for his family back on September 6th, nearly three weeks before. Several searches of the Yellowstone wilderness were launched, emanating from the car. None of them were successful. The searching for Stuart continued for weeks, and when it became more apparent that Stuart didn't seem to be anywhere in the area... And when the October weather in northwest Wyoming began to descend on the park, the search efforts were eventually abandoned. What Stuart Isaac was doing or where he was for the few weeks between September 6th and when his Lexus is found in Yellowstone National Park is a mystery, probably always will be. With the exception of a September 24th phone call two days before his car was found in Wyoming, on September 24th, Stuart called a friend from high school who lived in Guam. The timing of that phone call is interesting from a couple of standpoints. It was just two days before his Lexus was found at Yellowstone, and also the call was placed at 1.30 in the morning mountain time. These two old friends from high school haven't talked to each other recently at all, according to the friend, but they talked that night, that early morning, for about two hours. It's been reported that Stewart told his friend that he was en route to Yellowstone then, and his abandoned Lexus was found less than 48 hours later in Yellowstone National Park. No trace of Stuart Isaac has ever been found, not in the initial search, or perhaps just as notably, no trace of Stuart has been found by any of the millions who travel within Yellowstone every year and in more than a decade since. I have to keep any personal speculation about what became of Stuart to myself because that's the responsible thing to do when there is no evidence of, well, of anything. There is no indication that Stuart was suicidal, but there was no indication that he wasn't. Stewart was said to have had almost no experience in the wilderness, but there's no trailhead or trail hiking access near that busy road inside the park where his car was found. For that matter, there's nothing to say that Stewart even put the car there himself where it was found, but again, certainly no reason to believe he didn't either. Fascinating leftovers is all so far that we know about the disappearance of Stuart Isaac. Dead and Gone in Wyoming is made possible by the Hampton Inn & Suites in Riverton, Wyoming. Riverton is a gateway to adventure located right in the middle of the Cowboy State. It's a hub for experiencing the best the state has to offer. Attractions like Yellowstone and the Tetons, world-class skiing, mountain recreation, casino gaming, cultural and historical sites on and around the Wind River Reservation. Riverton has the best access to one of the best states in the country, and when you're visiting, you'll want to stay at the best. The Hampton Inn & Suites is conveniently located, serves a free hot breakfast, too. Make plans to stay at the Hampton Inn & Suites in Riverton, Wyoming, and feel the Hamptonality. A lifetime ago, searchers combed Yellowstone National Park between Canyon Village and Mount Washburn for a different kind of mystery altogether. Eight-year-old Dennis Eugene Johnson from California was camping with his family in Yellowstone on July 12, 1966. 
maybe not the best worded newspaper headlines at the time read, quote, eight-year-old boy lost hunting sister in park. But that is more or less the way the story went. Dennis had three sisters. The sister closest in age to Dennis, Mary, and just a year younger at seven, had become separated from the rest of the family during a picnic outing and had gotten lost. In search of his daughter, Dennis's father, William, grabbed the boy to help him search for her. And at some point, it was decided that Dennis and his father would split up to cover more ground. William, the father, did locate his missing daughter soon after, but Dennis Johnson has never been seen again. A search party, described as being the size of a small army of 75 men with helicopters and dogs, descended on the park, searching day and night, thoroughly covering as much as 20 miles in a radius every day or more. Despite peak summer and mid-July, overnight temperatures in the park that week could easily have been hypothermic, dropping into the mid-40s at night, which could actually be considered mild for the 8,000-foot elevation. On the fifth day of searching without a single trace of the 8-year-old, who logic might dictate may not be as equipped to survive for as long or travel as far as an adult, rangers were forced to consider out loud the possibility that Dennis might have been picked up by a vehicle somewhere. When he went missing, Dennis had been wearing a dark red or magenta long-sleeved shirt, tan Levi's jeans, and size 8 laced moccasin-type leather hiking boots with a distinctive sole. And searchers believe that those shoes especially might be helpful in efforts, that they might leave a very distinctive impression to be found in the dirt and mud around the canyon. But while tracks were located, many of them, in the search effort, nothing close to the shoe size or the distinction of those hiking boots was ever seen. There was no sign of Dennis at all after extensive searching, and despite this, or maybe because of that, optimism endured for days that Dennis somehow might still be alive somewhere in the park. Although a young boy, Dennis had ventured into the woods for hunting with his father at home in California before. It was also theorized that he might have been able to find the assistance of someone in the park who had not yet maybe been in touch with a park ranger. He could have been picked up by anybody, I suppose. The canyon around where Dennis had been last seen by his family in the area that had been most extensively searched does drop off sharply in spots, several hundred feet into the Yellowstone River below. This possibility is tragic an end to Dennis's short life as it is, was considered more and more following the first week of the search, and those areas of the canyon that could not be safely trekked on foot were examined with binoculars from the opposite side of the canyon wall. Dennis's father had been a volunteer member of the search party since the initial hours, and more and more family members from California and elsewhere had arrived in Yellowstone every day, all following the instructions of park rangers, all of them searching tirelessly for the missing boy. It was about this time that the FBI became involved as well. The FBI arrived in Yellowstone sometime between day three and day seven, which, of course, does automatically in one's mind raise some other possibilities to those reading about the missing boy in newspapers in Montana and Wyoming, following the story over the course of the midsummer with no doubt speculative rumoring in diners and aisles of small grocery stores. William was a 32-year-old and employee of the U.S. Navy in California. And while there is nothing in the stories of the family members or any other evidence really to indicate anything otherwise, the set of circumstances surrounding Dennis's vanishing did so happen to coincide with his being the last person to have seen his son alive and while alone in the wilderness. I have no doubt of these speculations from those following the story from their kitchen tables back in 1966. Without any indication of foul play, though, it is worth noting the inverse, the opposite, more compassionate possibility, 
And try to imagine William Johnson having given his eight-year-old boy instruction to separate in the woods looking for his sister and living with that seemingly fairly insignificant decision that he made in a moment of panic during the search for another of his children, living with that small choice for the rest of his life. Eventually, the helicopter that was being used in the search effort was diverted to put out forest fires caused by lightning elsewhere in the park. The search wound down over the following days and weeks, with William and his family being among the last to stop looking for Dennis. The formal search wrapped up two weeks after Dennis went missing. Despite early rumors to the contrary that fall, Dennis Johnson's remains were never located, leading experienced rangers involved in that two-week search in July of 66 wondering pretty loudly if he might even be in the park at all. Those involved in search and rescue efforts every summer in Yellowstone and the rest of Wyoming and the rest of the Rockies will be the first to tell you they usually find what they're looking for and who they're looking for. The condition of the person when they're found can sometimes, although not very often, be a different story. Search and rescue efforts have different outcomes, but the absolute majority outcome is that a person is found, whether alive, when they're found or not. But when you talk to search and rescue people about those cases where they haven't found what they're looking for, the personnel I've met have a very difficult time rationalizing that because they're the people on the ground with the dogs, with the helicopters, in modern times, even more advanced technology at their disposal. And they see firsthand how much effort, how much time, how thorough these efforts for the missing are. I do think you can go missing in the mountains and never be found. I don't think it's necessarily possible to thoroughly, completely, is the better word, search wilderness like Yellowstone National Park. But when the target of a search is not found, by some of the best search and rescue efforts in the world here in Wyoming, it does raise other questions. In this brief examination of two disappearances inside Yellowstone, Dennis Johnson's vanishing from a black-and-white world of 1966, and the modern-era mystery of a luxury car found in a tourist trap more than a half a century later, in the disappearance of the very much full-grown adult 48-year-old Stuart Isaac, we are reminded about the rare in the world of the usual. There is usually a resolution, and importantly, an explanation for us, a place where our minds can go in answering the question of an eternal Yellowstone mystery, that of what happened to this person. But then the rare of that place is still as true and still as present today as it was 50 years ago and the 500 years before that. There are still corners of the world's first national park where mystery can go to hide. Thank you for listening to Dead and Gone in Wyoming. This will be the first show that's actually been produced here in the Cowboy State. How about that? I will say that I have missed it, both the podcast and the place, and it's very good to be back. With our return here and things settling down for me personally, we will get back on a regular episode release schedule once every month. Feel free to reach out to me on Twitter, as always, at Wyoming Podcast. Email address is still up and going as well. And thanks for your positive feedback during our most recent break of episodes and for the case and story suggestions that you've given me in the meantime too that's wyomingpodcast at gmail.com before i forget sources for this episode the casper star tribune bozeman daily chronicle next star news upi the charlie project and the justice department's namus missing person database that is all the time we have for this month good to be back for everyone at county10.com 
I'm Scott Fuller, already looking forward to bringing you the next episode of Den and Gone in Wyoming. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.